0: Well, good morning. For any of you who don't know me, my name is Phil Trock. I'm one of two pastors or elders here at Richfield Bible Church. Last week, Brian took us through another section of the book of Romans, and next week he'll be starting, I believe, in Romans 12, 9. So I would encourage you to be reading that this coming week in preparation. But today, we will continue our series in the book of Judges, and this time, our fourth time in Judges, we'll look at Judges chapter 4 and 5. You think back, maybe you're wondering, when was the last time we were in Judges? And it might be longer than you remember or, or think. It was all the way back in October, the last time we were in Judges. Christmas has a way of taking over everything, which is good. So turn your Bibles to the book of Judges. You start at the front. you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges. Judges chapter 4. Now, kids, if you don't have one of the coloring pages, there is a coloring page for this story out at the Welcome Center with the other papers. So if your parents want you to have one, now would be a great time to go grab one of those for this morning. Now as you're turning to Judges, remember the book of Joshua right before Judges. um, In that book, Israel's second generation enters and conquers the promised land by driving out many, but not every single one of its inhabitants. And now in Judges, we're watching as later generations Living in the land, we're watching to see how they fare in that same mission to drive out the land's inhabitants. Sadly, of course, it does not go well. We've been observing in Judges that there is this this cycle that the people go through. It starts with Israel at rest in the land, enjoying the land that God has promised. Then Israel worships idols. Then God judges Israel. Then Israel groans under judgment. Then God rescues Israel with a judge, and then Israel is at rest again, but then Israel worships idols again. And this cycle keeps happening over and over again, and every time that they go through the cycle, they push harder and harder into sin. And so rather than a true cycle, it's kind of like a a downward spiral into sin for God's people. And so let's look at Joshua, or Judges, chapter 4, verse 1, and begin reading together. to see what the cycle looks like in these two chapters. Verse one, "'And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died.'" Ehud was the judge we talked about last time. "'And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he, Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron." And Sisera oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So here starts the cycle. They've been at rest. They persist in their sin. And so God hands them over to this nation. This, this turning to sin happens again and again and again. Israel keeps turning from the Lord. And every time, we, every time we see that theme, it's a reminder of sin's enslaving power. Every time we read it, we want Israel to stop Doing this. They want them to break out of this cycle, Uh, but they don't because they can't. In this case, as before, God judged Israel by empowering the nations, and so Israel once again becomes a conquered people. And so life starts getting bad in Israel. How bad did it get in Israel? Well, for more information about what it looked like in Israel during this time, we can go over to chapter 5. So turn over to Judges chapter 5. These two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5, have a very special relationship. Okay? They both cover essentially the same period of history. Okay? But one is a, a narrative or a story, and the other is a poem. Okay? So if you look over in chapter 5, look at verse 6, look at what it says. In the days of Shamgar, that's a previous judge, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, and she's going to be very prominent in our story today, so this is this era, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. You see, it's so bad in Israel that the people have abandoned the main highways, the main thoroughfares, and they're taking all like those, those hidden rabbit trails, the hidden paths that only the locals know about, to get from place to place because presumably the, the enemy, the, the oppressor, has taken over and controlled the main highways, And so finally, after 20 years of this, you can turn back to Judges 4, after 20 years of this, Israel turns to the Lord, not in repentance, and that's very important in Judges, Israel doesn't really repent of their sin, they just get tired of their punishment, okay? And so they turn to God and they cry out to him. And surprisingly, this is surprising every time we see it, in response to their groaning, God actually shows mercy to them, because God shows mercy on whomever he will have mercy. And so because of his, his heart for his people, even when their punishment is, is their own fault or the, the consequences of their sin, he's willing to show mercy to them. So what does God do? Look at chapter 4, verse 5. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, in the Old Testament, the prophets, those who speak God's word to the people, the prophets are often men, but there are also several women prophets. We read read about one this morning in Exodus 15, Miriam. And during this time, Deborah, another prophetess, is prophesying and judging in Israel. Now, unlike the judges that we've seen so far, like uh, Ehud and Shamgar and Othniel, Deborah is not going to judge by leading an army. She judges by the people coming to her and she makes judgments for them or among them. But on this day, on this day, God will show mercy to Israel by using Deborah to trigger an uprising in Israel against their enemies, an uprising that God is going to lead himself. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Deborah sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali. And said to him, "Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand." So, as the Lord's prophet and as the judge in Israel, Deborah calls upon a name, a man named Barak. And what is God's word from Deborah for Barak? He's supposed to gather soldiers. It's going to end up being 10,000. Take them to Mount Tabor. And then God will make sure that Sisera, the commander of the enemy army, Sisera comes and brings his army and his chariots and meets Barak at the Kishon River. And there God promises to give victory to Israel and to Barak. So let's look at how Barak responds. Look at verse 8. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And Deborah said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Now, Barak's initial response raises questions. At least it does for me. I'm sure it does for you as well. How are we to understand it when he insists that he will not go unless Deborah comes with him? Does this mean that Barak really wanted God's prophet and God's presence to go with him? He did not want to go out to the battle without God, without God's presence, God's prophet. And so he wants to have that instruction from the Lord readily available to him on the battlefield. And if so, if that's why, then that seems admirable. Or does his initial response betray a lack of faith? Is he he saying that God's promise of victory is not good enough? But God must also send along his prophet. God must do more for Barak before he is willing to act in faith. The answer is not a simple one for several reasons. First, Deborah's announcement that the battle would mean glory for a woman rather than Barak, that announcement seems to be a punishment for Barak. That seems to be something negative that's being announced to him because of what he has just said. And then in chapter 5, while Barak is certainly not the focus of that chapter, he is viewed very positively. In fact, he and Deborah lead that song. They sing it together for Israel. And if we go beyond the book of Judges, Barak is the only one that shows up again. Deborah and Jael do not. He shows up two more times. In 1 Samuel, he shows up in a list that Samuel is giving of the saviors that God used to save his people during this era, and Barak is named, not Deborah. And then finally, in Hebrews 11, Barak is included with others from the Judges period in a list of those who are commended through their faith. So on the one hand, Barak seems to be rebuked for his initial response, and yet he is remembered as a, a savior of Israel, and he is known for his faith in Hebrews 11. So Barak is complicated. He's complex. It's hard to label him good or bad. We'll come back to that. So Barak's response raises a lot of questions, but so does Deborah's response. Remember, Deborah says, I'm going to go with you, but the road on which you are going is not going to lead to your glory. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. That's very interesting, right? How is it possible when Barak is going to be the one leading this army of 10,000 men against Sisera? How is it possible that a woman is going to get the glory instead of Barak? You would think, and it would make sense, to assume that Deborah will be that woman. And Deborah is going to get the glory for this battle instead of Barak. Now, despite Barak's initial response, we read in verse 10 that he actually obeyed. He eventually obeyed. He called two tribes, 10,000 men respond. Verse 11. Verse 11 is, is interesting. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites... The descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kedesh. Notice there's no mention of Deborah, no mention of Barak, or Sisera, or Jabin, the king, or of the battle. Just a little note about a guy named Heber. Now, according to Judges 1.16, beginning of this book, the Kenites, Heber was a Kenite, they joined with the tribe of Judah in the south initially, but here we learn that Heber has moved his family north, farther north, closer to where this battle is going to take place. And that's good for us to know, apparently. Verse 12. Anyway, verse 12. When Sisera, see we kind of jump into this thing about Barak and then, or about um, Heber, and then we're back to the story. When Sisera, remember that's the commander of the enemy army, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, nine hundred chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harosheth Hagayim to the river Kishon. Okay, so God, just like he promised, is bringing Sisera with his dreaded chariots to the river Kishon to meet Barak's army. Verse fourteen. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Hirosheth Hagayim, that's Sisera's home. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, not a man was left. So when the Lord has, has gotten these armies to the position where he wants them, exactly as he said, he commands Barak through the prophetess, that this is the time. It's time to follow the Lord into battle. And so down from Mount Tabor comes Barak leading his 10,000 men to meet Sisera and his dreaded chariots. And then what happens? Okay. As you read through the Bible, you'll notice that very often we don't get as much information about the battle as we would like. But in almost every case where we feel that way and we want more information, we are told what is most important, and that's verse 15. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. So clearly, it was not the skill and the amazing strength of Barak's army, though they may have been skilled and strong. It was the Lord who won the battle for Barak and Israel that day. But as we did before, there is actually a little bit more detail available to us in chapter 5. Remember, this is the poem that covers the same amount of time period. So go over and look at chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20. So in chapter 5, verse 20, we read this. From heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon, remember that's a river. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. So the question is, how does the river sweep away all these chariots? Okay? If you're looking in your Bible wondering, my Bible's a little different, okay? This is a very difficult poem to translate. And so there actually is quite a variety between the different translations, just to warn you about that. But here in this verse, we see that the powers of heaven, the stars as it's described here, the powers of heaven are leveraged against Sisera and his chariots, so that his great strength, his, his dreaded chariots, become worthless and they're swept away by the river. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, most likely, it means that the heavens unleashed such an incredible downpour and rainstorm that the Kishon River overflowed its banks and turned the ground to mud beneath the, the wheels of Sisera's chariots, and the water sweeps them away in a flash flood. Which sounds a lot like the time we read about this morning when the army of Egypt tried to follow Israel through the Red Sea, but the ground became mud beneath their chariot wheels, and the water swept them away. Now back in Judges 4, back in Judges 4. The story continues... Sisera's army is defeated. It says not a man was left. And yet, at this point in the story, there is still one. Okay? There is still one. There will be none left, but right now we're still at one. Verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin and the king of Hazor, excuse me, Jabin the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Now, have you ever heard of Heber the Kenite before? We just read about him a few verses ago. Remember, he was that guy that lived in the south but decided to move north. Okay? There was that random note about him. So you know about Heber. Don't forget about him. Okay? He's important. Heber the Kenite separated himself from the Kenites and moved, moved north. So now Sisera is on the run from Barak. He's all by himself, and he flees to Heber's family. Remember, there's a peace between Heber the Kenite and Jabin the king of, the king of Hazor. So Sisera knows that Heber's home is is going to be kind of like the safe house for him. But Sisera Sisera never actually sees Heber. He only sees Jael, Heber's wife. Verse 18. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her her into, into the tent. And she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. Notice that Sisera doesn't have to to force his way in. She comes out, like, welcoming him into the tent. She invites him to come in, which probably confirmed for him, okay, this is going to be a safe spot for me to kind of hold out until the heat is off. She hides him, she feeds him, and stands guard so that he can sleep and relax. But all is not as it seems. Verse 21. Instead of standing guard, verse 21, Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Now, parents, if you can look over and see the coloring page your kid has, (laughs) I had actually started another one because there are coloring pages of this scene, if you can imagine that. But both my son and Brian agreed that wasn't a good idea. (laughs) So I went went with the one you can see. So Sisera falls asleep there in the tent because he is really tired. He's running by himself away from Beric's army. And he has no reason reason to suspect any threat is going to come from jail. She's been super nice already. She's fed him, cared for him. She's watching the door. And they have this peace agreement. So everything's going to be okay. But he has completely misjudged her. Now, we could object to what Jael does here. Okay, we could say this is gruesome, and, and maybe we should object to it, but the narrative does not make that clear. The narrator, the narrator is not very worried about this. Okay? We're not even told what motivated Jael, this non-Israelite, to act this way. Why did she want to kill him? We are not told that. Perhaps you could say that Jael violated the peace between her husband and Jabin, the king, uh, but it's hard to condemn Jail for not following her husband in consorting with the wicked. Rather, we should maybe honor her because she acted better than her husband did. Okay. Or maybe we could object and say this is just barbaric and, and gruesome, uh, and it's so deceptive. Okay. But this is, this, is, uh, this is par for the course in, in Judges. Okay. If you remember the last time we were together, that was the story of Ehud. And in that story, Ehud, the judge in Israel, he deceived the king of Israel's enemy, so that that king expected no threat from Ehud, And then when the king was defenseless and they were alone in his chambers, uh, he, he, he pulls out his sword, Ehud does, and he plunges it right into this big, fat king and kills him. So Ehud has a similar event, and so Jael's actions are not unparalleled in the book of judges. And interestingly, Jael's actions are explicitly celebrated in judges at length. Okay, so turn over one more time. Actually, there's another time later, but turn over again to chapter 5, verse 24. Kind of have to keep going back and forth to get the full picture here. Chapter 5, verse 24. Look at what it says in verse 24. Remember, Deborah and Barak are singing. Verse 24. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He, that's Sisera, asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. Does that sound like these singers are anxious to get past this point in the story because they're embarrassed about it. No, this is like the best part to them. Okay? <laughs> they're like a person who's eating at their favorite restaurant and they want this to go really slow and enjoy every bite. Okay? If they just say, JL killed Sisera, it's over way too quick. Okay? They want to belabor this. They want to savor every moment again and again of this truly gruesome thing that she did. They are so excited about this. Okay? When something is this enjoyable, you want it to last as long as possible. Okay. But as we think about this, we also want to note at this time the fulfillment of Deborah's prophecy. Do you remember that, what she said? Remember when they were kind of getting ready to go to the battle, Deborah said to Barak, she said the road on which Barak was going would not lead to his glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And surprisingly, we thought that would be Deborah, which would make all the sense in the world at that point. But now we discover that actually Jael is the one that she was talking about in that prophecy. Verse 22. This is how Barak finds out about this. Verse 22, and we're again back in chapter 4. I should have told you that. Verse 22, chapter 4. Verse 22, chapter 4. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jao went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg in his temple. And so with this bloody scene before him, uh, Barak surely has to remember what Deborah said. Okay. He has to remember that prophecy. So Barak doesn't get to kill Sisera himself. None of his soldiers get to kill Sisera. But this woman takes it upon herself and kills the commander of the enemy army. She gets the honor of defeating the leader of God's enemy. Verse 23. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So the battle is over, and this battle belongs to the Lord. In the end, even Jael doesn't get the kind of glory that God gets for this battle. This was his victory. But, But Jael's notoriety or her her glory in this is not competing with God's glory. In fact, Jael accentuates the glory of God because God's prophetess had predicted that a woman would get the glory for this battle. And so no one would have expected this to happen. This would be totally unexpected. But God had predicted it because he determined it because God controls everything. And of course, as we just read, this victory is just the beginning. Soon, Israel has thrown off Jabin's domination Completely. Now, I promise this is the last time to turn over to chapter 5, verse 28. Okay? So, after the battle, there is all this excitement in Israel, and there's this song that Deborah and Barak sing together. But things are very different back in Sisera's hometown. Look in chapter 5, verse 28. Out of the window she peered. Who's she? The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. So what is this? Okay. Deborah and Barak are visualizing what is likely happening at Sisera's home. His mother is watching out the window through the lattice, waiting for her son to return. Why is she wailing? Verse 28. She says, why is his chariot so long coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Where is my son Sisera? He should have been back by now. And together with those around her, the other princesses with her, she tries to, to calm and like reassure herself that everything is okay. Look at verse 29. Her wisest princesses answer, indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A woman or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. Sure, they're just gathering the spoils of their victory, lots of dyed, embroidered fabrics, and of course, a womb or two for each soldier to bring home. Notice this woman's view of the Israelite women. They are just wombs for the soldiers of Sisera. As one author said, the, wom- the women of her enemies are valued only for their sexual or reproductive potential. And so this visualizing by by Deborah and Barak of what is likely happening at Sisera's home is is not supposed to inspire any any pity or sympathy from us or the initial readers. Remember, they are singing about this in Israel. Israel does not feel badly about this at all. They don't feel badly for this mother who does not yet know that her son is dead. They They are celebrating the defeat of God's enemies and the consequences of that feat that have now reached the very home of Sisera. That leads us to the question: is it, is it really okay for Israel to celebrate this woman's suffering? Is it, is it okay to be happy about this woman and her suffering? Well, we know that the Bible tells us that God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 18:23. But Judges five is not the only passage where God's people get to rejoice for God's glory in victory over his enemies, and they celebrate the death of the wicked. We read one this morning in Exodus 15 when they celebrate the death of the entire Egyptian army. So to be sure, like, God's emotions are complicated, and we certainly can't say we understand every aspect of them. But what seems to make sense here is to understand that God made humans in his image. And and because of that, even... Even the death of a wicked image bearer like Sisera on one level is a loss. And so in Sisera's death, God finds no pleasure because he was an image bearer. And yet when viewed on another level, the death of those who oppose God, the death of God's enemies is always a reason for joy, both for God himself and for God's people. It glorifies God's justice when the people who rebel against him are put down and destroyed. And it shows God's people that he will ultimately be able to fulfill his promise and be victorious over his enemies. He will be able to judge and to save as he has promised us. And verse 31 of chapter 5 puts the death of Sisera, the death of his soldiers, and the suffering of his mother in this larger context, this grand plan of God. You see, these are are not just wicked image bearers. These are not just Deborah's enemies or Barak's enemies. These are not just Israel's enemies. Notice what it says in verse 31. These are God's enemies. Verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. And so the joy of Judges 5 is not some uh, relishing in the, in the simple death of another human. Okay, This is the joy of seeing God advance his plan to save by defeating his enemies and strengthen his people. And that is always good news for God's people. It was back then, and it is today. Now, as we finish this morning, I want to think a little bit more with you about what Barak said when he heard those, that command from Deborah. Remember, he said to her, "I will go with, if you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Okay. So Barak knows exactly what God has said. There's no like, confusion as to what God's command is. But he refuses to believe and obey unless God meets his demands. Okay? Think about what Barak is, is really saying. Barak is saying, I won't obey you unless you do what I want. Okay? Or you flip it around. He's saying, I will obey you, but only if you do what I want. Either way, you could read that. Now, if you're a parent... Have you ever heard this kind of response from your child? You command your child to do something, and in response, the child says, I won't obey you unless you do this for me. Okay? That's not a good response from the child. Okay? When your child responds this way, they are trying to control you. Okay? They're trying to control what happens. And so the same way with Barak. Whether he realized his own heart in this or not, Barak was trying to control God. I won't obey unless you do what I want. Now, your child may respond this way because they don't want to do whatever you've commanded them. Uh, But for Barak, it seems more likely that he actually wanted to do this, to lead the army. That seems like something he would want to do, but he was afraid. And so he gave God the conditions under which he would feel comfortable doing what God had commanded. He told God what it would take for him to obey God's command. And what was that? Barak demanded that God do something to make him more confident of God's promise. So God's promise and command were were not enough by themselves for Barak to believe and obey. God had spoken clearly. Barak had heard him, but he refused to believe and obey until there was something else beyond God's word that would make him more confident or confident enough to obey God's command because God's command was hard. Now, I know how Barak feels. I bet you do too. Oftentimes, Believing and obeying God is fairly, uh, fairly difficult, okay? There are some times each day that, that it's easy. It just we, we hear it and we do it. Uh, but for all of Christ's followers, there will be times that believing and obeying is, is more difficult. It's, it's harder. And your situation, this may happen daily or maybe even more or, or less often, but it will happen. And when it does, by God's grace, we must guard our heart from this kind of response that Barak had in the story. When we know what God has said, there may be the temptation, before we believe and obey, there may be the temptation to to demand that God do something for us, and then we will believe and obey him. Perhaps we have thought something like, God, I I will forgive my brother or sister in Christ if you have them come to me asking for my forgiveness. Then I'll do that. Or God, I, I will share the gospel with my neighbor if you take away all of my anxiety about doing so. Then I'll obey you. Okay? God, I will love and cherish my wife if you get her to love and cherish me first. Then I'll do it. Or God, I will give financially to the church or to others when you get my income to a place where I'm able to save at least 30%. Then I'll give. Or, God, I will stop looking at pornography if you just let me get married. When we know what God has said, there may be the temptation before we believe and obey to demand that God do something for us. And then, then we will obey when our conditions are met. Now, I want to be clear. It is not wrong to struggle to believe what God has said. In other words, it is not wrong to feel in our hearts the fight to believe when it's hard, okay? We see that all through the Psalms, and we saw it today in the New Testament reading when that boy's father came to Jesus and said, I believe, help my unbelief. That is not wrong, but it is wrong to withhold our faith and obedience until God does what we, commit, what we demand. Your fight to believe and obey could Be so glorifying to God if rather than withholding your faith and obedience, you say to him, God, I know what you've promised, I know what you've commanded, but I'm scared, or I'm skeptical, or I feel weak for this, but but I want to believe and obey anyway. I believe, help my unbelief. That kind of a response glorifies God and at the same time acknowledges our weakness and struggle. It does not glorify God when our response to his word communicates that his word is not enough. And the story of Barak reminds us that this is sin. We don't tell God when we are going to believe and obey him. But the story of Barak also reminds us that God forgives this sin. And he gives the faith we need to believe and to obey so that he is glorified in our faith and obedience. So Barak sinned in what he did or what he demanded from God. And there were consequences, to be sure. But Barak still led the army of Israel into battle. He led Israel in the song of celebration in Judges chapter 5. And not only did he become known as one of the saviors in this era of Israel, but he also became known for his faith in Hebrews 11. So here we have a man who is who is known for this failure. In fact, this this kind of uh, hesitancy or or or. Failure of faith is is pretty much what Barak is known for. This is probably his most famous moment. So on the one hand, we have a man who is known for this failure of faith, but then he's also known for his faith. So what does that mean? If you can have a person who who has this great failure, but then is also known for his faith, what what does that mean? Well, first it means that after this failure, God did not sideline Barak or give up on him. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God forgave and used him. And second, it means that Barak's life was a mixture of faith and unbelief, which tells you that though Barak will save Israel on this battlefield, he cannot save Israel in every way that Israel needs saving. The people need to be rescued, not only from God's enemies around them, but also the enemy within. Not, not among them, but actually within each one of them. And only a judge far greater than Barak could do that. Only Jesus, who died on the cross and was raised to save his people from their sins, can save them like that. But when we say that Barak's life is a mixture of faith and unbelief, that also tells us something very important. And that is that Barak is just like me. And he's just like you. It is common for us, on Monday, to face something big and respond with faith. But then on Tuesday, we face the smallest frustration or worry, and we totally lose it. We are just like Barak, a mixture of faith and unbelief, just like everyone else who follows Jesus. And of course, this is perfectly clear when we look at that, that long list of faithful people in Hebrews 11, okay? do you remember some of the people that are on there? Okay. Samson is on that list. Okay. You know the other surprise, or another one of the surprises? Really, everyone on that list is a surprise. Okay? But one of the other surprises that we don't think about as much is Abraham. It is a surprise. Again, they all are. But think about Abraham's life. Even Abraham. Because despite his faith, there were plenty of of times when he famously failed to act in faith. And yet there he is in Hebrews 11, commended through his faith. You see, the Bible doesn't hide, Brian says this all the time the Bible doesn't hide the faults of its heroes because they are all just like us. On our own, through ourselves, there is no hope of salvation. But the good news for these heroes in the Bible and the good news for us today is that uh, we don't need to be faultless either. Because we can't be. There is only one hero in the Bible who was always faultless. Only one hero who was always faithful. Jesus, God incarnate, God come in human flesh, always obeyed his father, even when that meant drinking the dreaded cup of God's wrath for sin on the cross. And his sacrifice, God accepted, raising Jesus from the dead so that all who turn from sin and trust completely in Jesus for rescue, he saves completely. And so we are just like Barak, a mixture of faith and unbelief. And so we praise the Lord for the mercy and the grace and the strength he promises to those who keep turning from sin back to Jesus. And so in response to God's word today, in response to this story of Barak, let us pray together, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are such a gracious and merciful God, not only to send your son to die on the cross for our sins, but to be patient with us as your people, to forgive us whenever we turn to you from our sin and repent. Lord, thank you for this story of Barak and Deborah and Jael. Thank you for all the things, the wonderful things it reminds us about you your power, your sovereignty, your grace and mercy, uh, all of these things, Lord, cause our hearts to rejoice in them. And I pray that today as we think about the last week and we remember uh, we remember our own mixture of faith and unbelief, times that we responded as we would have hoped and times that we look back on now with shame. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us of these times as you have promised. I pray that you would give us the strength this week to say no to our flesh, no to sin, and yes to Jesus, yes to righteousness. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.